Well, you know, the amount of money lost to weeds in our corn and soybean fields each year often runs in the billions of dollars. It's just incredible sometimes. Anybody who's been farming, you know, for any length of time knows that getting spring weeds under control early, that means timely applications of herbicides, which a lot of times is easier said than done, especially when our fields are wet and even soggy like they were this year when we had our first stretch of warm sunny days. Problem was for a lot of guys, fields were so soggy that they uh, couldn't get heavy equipment on to spray. So when it comes to weeds, my go-to guy is Dr. Bill Johnson, professor of weed science, botany, and pathology at Purdue University. And Bill, let's start with your assessment of where we are in the region, considering the weather pattern that we've had as weeds uh, began to emerge. So as we think about what's going on now, for the guys that got the early crop planted, some of these guys are assessing stands, trying to determine if that cold spell had any impact on crop emergence. You know, mm. if they had crop seeds sitting in cool, wet soils, right. did they have uptake and, and not be able to metabolize the herbicide? So is that causing any problems? And then for the guys that have planted more recently, depending on where they're at, you know, have they gotten an activating rainfall event on a pre-emerge herbicide? again, all of this goes right to the whole point about timing, which, gosh, it just seems like that's so critical. And when we have talked in the past, you know, we've, we've gone in depth with regard to timing applications and, and what all that means. Quickly, the few things that make it perfect in terms of applications. Yeah. As far as pre-emerge herbicides, what we'd really like to see is about an inch of rainfall the first week and another inch of rainfall the second week. And ideally, all that doesn't come at once. So showers where we get three to five tenths that kind of bring the soil moisture up, mm -hmm. but don't move soil around are ideal. Basically, what you want to do is you want to get that, that herbicide molecule dislodged from the soil particle and into the soil water where it can move around and come into contact with, with weed seedlings. But you don't want excessive rainfall that either moves that molecule deeper into the soil um, where it's not going to do you as much good or it moves it off of the surface as well. So again, if we can get an inch of rain a week for the first two weeks, that's usually the ideal scenario for residual herbicides in, in both corn and soybeans. What are your top concerns, Bill, as we head into the, the heart of the 2023 growing season? I think the, uh, you know, the, the big transition that we've seen over the last 10 years or so is really this migration of, of water hemp from the western and central corn belt into the eastern corn belt. And you know, having worked in Iowa and Missouri um, during the 90s, you know, I had a chance to see how, how devastating water hemp is. And then when I moved over here to Indiana in 2002, we really didn't have much. We had a few fields kind of here and there, but it, it really wasn't in every county like it is now. Now throughout much of the eastern Corn Belt, we do have quite a battle on our hands with water hemp. And in terms of herbicide resistance, the stuff that's historically given us the big headaches has, has been ALS resistance, glyphosate resistance, and then the, the PPO herbicide resistance. Now what we have happening, you know, due to rapid adoption and use, the dicamba-resistant soybeans, 2,4-D-resistant soybeans, and liberty-resistant soybeans, we're going to have populations that develop resistance to those chemistries. And again, we're specifically talking about water hemp here. So we do have a, a couple of populations of, of dicamba resistance that we've documented already, and that technology has been utilized the most over the last five years. Um, we do have concerns with increased occurrences of 2,4-D and, and glufosinate or Liberty 
not working as well as it did a few years ago. So that's something we're going to have to keep our eye on in soybeans. On the corn side of things, we are using an awful lot of what we call these HPPD or group 27, the bleacher type herbicides. Bleacher herbicide resistance has been fairly widespread in the central and western corn belt, but I do have some concerns that 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 could make its way over here um, because of the low cost of these herbicides now. It seems like they get sprayed on almost every corn acre. So that's a concern. <laughs> yeah. Palmer Amaranth here a few years back, it was like Darth Vader had landed in our fields and everybody was just uh, on a panic about Palmer Amaranth. I mean, I got to believe there's still some of it out there, but is it as bad as it was? Well, what has happened with Palmer Amaranth is we've learned a lot about the weed in, in our environment. And what we've learned about it is that weed doesn't like wet soils. And because the eastern corn belt tends to be generally wetter than the central or the western corn belt, that weed just doesn't thrive as often in our environment. Now, typically what happens if we go three or four weeks without a good rainfall event, Some of these guys that have had Palmer amaranth in the past and are on sandier, more drought-prone soils will start calling and having questions about how to control it. But if we have a a wet year, typically water hemp is a much bigger headache than Palmer amaranth is. So it's still around, but not a, a big headache unless we have some extremely dry weather conditions where that weed tends to flourish. And finally, uh, you know, the uh, challenge of weed control has really gotten progressively more intense. And and it's not just managing herbicide resistance, but it's also application rates so that we're not over-applying and wasting money on expensive inputs. But it's also meeting environmental guidelines. So just to kind of speak to that in a general sense, you know, as as farmers kind of struggle to (laughs) handle all of these things simultaneously. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, the, the one underlying situation that we have is if you look at the um, the way the labels are written regarding the environmental conditions and, and when it's legal to spray, we have relatively few spray hours compared to the number of acres that we have to cover. And, and we simply don't have the sprayer capacity to cover all the acres when the label conditions are stipulating to spray these herbicides in. So that really came to bear on us with, with the dicamba technology and these wind speed and timing of rainfall events. Mm -hmm. Um, What's going to happen in the very near future is some of these new atrazine regulations go in place. We're going to see even more stringent regulations with regard to things like atrazine, not only from the standpoint of environmental conditions, but also how far away can you apply atrazine to water sources or any areas that might have endangered species. That little situation is going to be an eye-opener for a lot of folks, too, when, when those things come into play. Dr. Bill Johnson, professor of weed science, botany, and pathology at Purdue University. Bill, always appreciate your wisdom and the time that you carve out for us. Thanks. Yep, you bet. Podcasts by Federated Media.